Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Vashti Fox, who is working on a PhD about fascism and anti-fascism in Australia, as well as a book on the same. Thanks for joining us, Vashti. Hi, good to be here. I guess just to begin with, there's been a renewed academic interest in fascism in Australia, but less so anti-fascism. Why do you think that is and uh, why have you chosen to uh, counteract that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's curious. There's so much focus on you know, fascism, both kind of interwar fascism and the kind of post-war fascist groups, fascist dynamics. The There was an, you know, in Australia itself, an absolutely, you know, phenomenal amount of literature on far-right figures like Pauline Hanson kind of in the 90s and subsequently. And then again around the kind of emergence of Reclaim Australia, a real both academic and popular fascination with the far-right and very little about the kind of anti-fascist resistance or, or protest movements against far-right figures, again, kind of like Pauline Hanson. And, I mean, in a way, I think it's probably to do with an emphasis both in the kind of liberal academic kind of mainstream on a particular kind of anti-fascist response that they value. So, you know, there's a lot of writing on state-based responses, on sort of counter-terrorism, on the various counter-educational programs and so on and so forth, whereas the whole kind of approach of anti-fascist organising, which emphasises street demonstrations, you know, often quite militant tactics, the, the sections of kind of a working class resistance as well. That's generally not something that's kind of valued in either mainstream academia or something that I would say mainstream uh, newspaper accounting of these kind of phenomena really wants to sort of emphasise. So I think that's part of it and, and that's partly why I want to write something to kind of reinsert that history into an argument about how the far right grows and how it, it is diminished. But also I think there's just a lot in terms of today's politics that requires some look at history and some consideration of the kind of tactics that have worked, uh, some of the ones that haven't, some of the historical debates that have occurred amongst and between different forces on the left about how to characterise different forces on the far right. And I think, you know, doing this kind of research, I, I hope, will kind of provide some answers to some of those questions. Uh, Vashti, we've recently seen uh, attacks on the union movement from a fairly motley crew of uh, anti-vaxxers, anti-lockdown people uh, and the far right. 
how can the left protect ourselves from labour history being co-opted by these reactionaries? It's interesting that there's, I mean, there's been a current in the far right in Australia, which has long claimed parts of, of the labour movement as their own, the flying of the um, Southern Cross flag or the, you know, national action in the kind of 1980s, loved to claim Jack Lang, funnily enough, the, the Premier of, of New South Wales in the 1930s, who was actually often attacked by fascists from the New Guard. Similarly, you know, the celebration of kind of, I would say, figures, left-wing heroes like Med Kelly or poets like Henry Lawson and so on. That there were some checkered elements to his past, but you know this is kind of this trend has kind of long been there, and I think in a way it's it's a it's an attempt to broaden out their appeal to make themselves seem more enculturated as part of uh, an Australian kind of working class tradition to appeal to a working class constituency. And I think it is so important to kind of say why that's problematic and, and deeply uh, mistaken for people to kind of be drawn in by that or to, to assume that these, these people are part of the left and so on. Um, the attacks on the CFMEU officers were abhorrent, were, in my opinion, part of a, uh, a very, very worrying trend in Australian politics at the moment. And uh, I think it's really important to to kind of look at what the genuine working class tradition stands for, which is social solidarity against all of the kind of divisiveness, the racism, the kind of rampant nationalism and so on of, of a kind of fascist movement. And so, yeah, that's why I think it is so important to kind of reclaim a lot of that that history and that, um, that heritage. Speaking of uh, the Eureka flag and I guess buildings and uh, construction and deconstruction, you're examining the history of anti-fascism in um, Australia in the post-Second World War era, including in Melbourne. And I'm wondering if you could give us a glimpse into what that was like 50 years ago in Melbourne, because we had a, a small group called the NSPA, I believe, at the time, and they ran into some trouble. So while it was uh, quite a different era... What has your uh, investigation revealed about this time? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously the context was really different to today. The left was on the march <laughs> in many ways. The anti-Vietnam War movement had was sort of both the expression of a kind of growing discontent in Australian society on a whole range of fronts, but also accelerated and, and gave, I think, uh, a kind of a, a broader base for the left to kind of build and grow. A whole variety of social movements kind of emerged at that time, the student movement, the the, the women's movement, and kind of nascent um, gay liberation movement. And I think the, that kind of context, you know, also saw the development of and a radicalisation of different kind of populations. So amongst the Jewish population in Australia, there was uh, a sort of a, a youth element, a left-wing youth element to that who you know, were highly attuned to the questions of the far right and fascists. And then there was also a kind of a, the student left and, and there was a Maoist current in that, which were also very keen on mobilising against the Nazis when they appeared, uh, particularly in Melbourne. So in the research that I've been doing, I look particularly at uh, a number of kind of demonstrations and, and quite serious confrontations that happened in, in different parts of Melbourne around the one of the headquarters of the NSPA uh, and then also one of the possible speak-outs that the, the Nazis were attempting to have down on the Yarra Bank in 1970 and then again um, in 1972. 
And I mean, those kind of confrontations are, are really, I mean, there are good stories <laughs> from them. So in 1970, the Nazis were attempting to make some headway in Melbourne that had a lot of trouble there beforehand. And they decided that they would try and have, um, like many different kind of groups, especially on the left, um, did have a speak out, basically, kind of down on the Yarra Bank, which was sort of the traditional speaker's corner. The left got wind of this and in conjunction with a number of kind of Jewish groups, including some returned servicemen, Jewish return servicemen, and also some people who were part of an organisation called the Victims of Ex-Nazi Persecution, they decided that they would go down and and confront the Nazis and try and stop them from having this um, speaking event. The police told the Nazis not to come. And a crowd kind of nonetheless of the left gathered down um, on the Yarra Bank of a few thousand. They got more and more restive as they kind of realised that the Nazis weren't actually going to show up. <laughs> and uh, a number of bikies turned up and uh, the crowd wrongly actually assumed that the bikies were Nazis and massed on them and threw them um, into the Yarra with their bikes and everything. And it's actually funny, one of the people that I interviewed who had actually participated in throwing one of what they had assumed was a Nazi bikie into the river, said that he actually met one of these bikies later in life at a pub and he said the bikie was very philosophical about it all. You know, <laughs> didn't, didn't mind too much about the about the, um, the ruination of his bike. But, yeah, and so, you know, the Nazis didn't show up. The crowd um, marched right up from, um, from the Yarra Bank up into Carlton to outside of the Nazi headquarters in Nicholson Street in, in Carlton. Uh, where basically they, they kind of set siege to the, the Nazi headquarters there. And, you know, there was even guns produced at some point uh, from the Nazi side. A few shots were fired. Um, and then finally the, the cops kind of managed to bundle the Nazis away into, and I love these little details when you're doing research like this, uh, but <laughs> one of the newspapers described the police as having a, um, a lime green van out the back of the Nazis headquarters, which they kind of bundled them into. So, yeah, that, that was kind of one nice little uh, story there. Um, and the next one uh, occurred in 1972, which was outside of Beaver Street, which was in the western suburbs. And, um, again, this was kind of a, the Nazis had shifted headquarters, so they went kind of further west, I suppose, in, in hope of a, a new audience or a calmer time. But they didn't find it. And, again, a similar kind of combination of student radicals, of some trade unionists, but also of Jewish people who had seen the horrors of, of fascism during the Second World War came out and basically um, laid waste to this house. They, you know, ran through it. They set fire to all of the bedding inside the house. They got all of the kind of Nazi lists um, and, and paraphernalia and kind of brought it out into the front street and and um, set it all on fire. You know, and again, because I'm doing an oral history, there's just so many, again, little kind of snippets that, that are so revealing. I um, uh, interviewed um, one of the student radicals at the time who must have been about kind of 17 or 18. And, you know, he said he was quite wet behind the ears and he was kind of out there and was in front of the house kind of whooping and 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 laughing at the burning Nazi paraphernalia. Um, And he kind of turned to his right and saw a number of very sombre-looking older men, men in their kind of late 40s, early 50s, who 
were Jewish, kind of dressed very soberly. And, you know, one of them turned to him and said, there's nothing to laugh about here. And then picked up a baseball bat and went into the house and and proceeded to smash up the windows. So, you know, it's just kind of gives you a sense of the gravity with which I think a lot of the reappearance of these sorts of currents in Australian political life was felt. This is now 50 years ago, so some time and well beyond the statute of limitations, I imagine. But did you? how did you find uh, actually uh, reaching out to people and asking them to talk about this period? Is it, is it a, a memory that remains vivid? Did, did, did people have different recollections? Oh, yeah. I mean, for everyone that I spoke to, it was, it was the, those two demonstrations in particular really stood out in their minds. There was not much hesitancy, really. I think for a lot of people, they were involved in a whole range of activities at the time that were probably frowned upon by, you know, the authorities and the police. But I think for this, this had a particular kind of moral charge for them. Um, I mean, the, the extent to which there was kind of disagreement, you know, over kind of exact um, timelines of events, that, that certainly was there. There was also a bit of disagreement, I suppose, about the, the importance of these mobilisations for some of the people that I interviewed, they were involved in the, the movement against the Vietnam War and then after that against apartheid South Africa. And for some people, they really felt that these kind of, I suppose, toy town, Sig Heiling Nazis in the centre of Melbourne were just not the main game, while others sort of felt like there was a, a dynamic interplay sort of between the resurgence of of, of a kind of a fascist current in Australian political life that needed to be challenged and what was happening kind of globally and, and internationally. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, there were, there were quite a few differences, but no, no one was really concerned about the criminality of the events, really. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Vashti Fox about the history of anti-fascism in Australia. As well as producing all of these student radicals, uh, the Vietnam War also uh, radicalised one Jack Van Tongeren. Some of your research has been looking at JVT and the Australian Nationalist Movement. Could you tell us a bit about what you found about their activities in Perth? Yeah, so Jack Van Tongeren, it's interesting. He was one of those people who I love, and because I just recently, well, the last couple of years, moved to Perth and you know, just talking to people around the traps who were alive and conscious during the time uh, of, of the 1980s. He was sort of a figure of ridicule. You know, a lot of people didn't take him seriously. But on the other hand, there was kind of an underlying sense of menace. But he was he sort of drifted away, I think, in people's consciousness to some degree. But his activities remained, you know, really prominent in people's minds. So in the 1980s, Jack Van Tongeren kind of headed up a a split from national action. In Sydney, he moved to Western Australia and he sort of attempted to cobble together what evolved into being a fairly classic fascist sort of neo-Nazi organisation with all sorts of strange religious elements to it. But, you know, again, kind of on the surface of it, trading in a, a sort of a, an Australian sort of strasserism, like a real, you know, more working class than now kind of, I suppose, pose. He began organising skinhead, young skinheads as well, in a kind of massive racist and anti-Semitic postering campaign of the city. And these posters kind of appeared, you know, with huge kind of frequency. I think it was estimated something like 400,000 posters kind of went up over the course of a couple of years in the late 1980s. 
and it just helped sort of really create an atmosphere and an air of kind of menace for a lot of people of colour, a lot of Asian migrants and a lot of Jewish people who were kind of living in and around this fairly white bread kind of city. And after a period of kind of engaging in, in, in that kind of propaganda campaign, the A&M really decided to up the ante and they started firebombing Chinese restaurants. So, and, and again, that it was very lucky that, that no one actually was hurt in those firebombings, but there was a series of other bashings and, you know, attacks that went on at the time of both anti-fascist activists but also of, you know, Asian people. And, and one of those bashings actually resulted in the death of a Malaysian taxi driver, not formally by someone who was in the A&M but by someone who was influenced by them and, and the kind of atmosphere in which they'd created. Was there opposition to the A&M and what form did it take? There was opposition. There was a lot of consternation about the uh, postering campaign and, you know, a whole range of different kind of uh, kind of community organisations were involved in trying to take down the posters. There was church groups that kind of organised Sundays out to kind of rip them down and the left, to the extent that it, it kind of existed at the time, uh, you know, was concerned about the postering and did what they could to kind of to try and challenge it. But, you know, the left was kind of small, um, certainly smaller than in the 1970s in Melbourne and fairly kind of disparate and incoherent. And for a number of the kind of young activists who started groups like they started a group called Aussies Against Racism, um, for a number of those young activists, they ended up quite badly, uh, well, one of them in particular ended up quite badly beaten up. The A&M lured one of these young activists to a car park in one of the kind of suburban shopping centres and basically took to him with a, a, a bat, you know, and then, and then a knife. And, you know, that kind of had a really damaging effect, I think, on, on many of the young activists who were just kind of rightly terrified by what was going to happen. So how to deal with that kind of violence, I think, was a real challenge with a small left, a young left, and, you know, a, a left that didn't necessarily see itself as kind of engaging in, in anti-fascist activity. It was kind of much more anti-racism was how they were mobilising. So there were, you know, various kind of attempts to confront the ideas. There was an attempt to kind of have it have um, anti-racism demonstrations and so on. But to the degree that there was, you know, a similar kind of active confrontational anti-fascist movement as there was in the 1970s in Melbourne, it just didn't play out that way in Perth. In terms of the appeal or, or the decision by the A&M to concentrate on anti-Asian racism in particular, did that resonate within Perth? And to what extent was it a, I guess, a reflection of broader attitudes? And, and secondly, what was the uh, effects of this campaign on uh, uh, both the Asian community within Perth and, and outside of it? Sort of anti-Asian racism has a very long history in Australia, uh, you know, from the kind of the period of the gold fields right through the First and Second World Wars, the whole kind of concern of yellow peril kind of um, invasions coming from the north. It's been a strain of Australian racist ideology for a long period. So there was something to build on there, but it really re-emerged I would say kind of, you know, both as a response to the Vietnam War, there was increased levels of racism, but then much more um, strongly in the kind of early 80s as the kind of questions of Asian migration 
dissolution of the white Australia policy and so on kind of came to the fore. Figures like Geoffrey Blaney campaigning from quite early on around these kind of questions. And then later, you know, John Howard really taking them up and running with them. And then figures like Hanson kind of attenuating them even more. Um, so that was the kind of context. I think in Australia, in Western Australia in particular, that kind of hostility to Asian migration was there and, and something to build on, you know, but it's sort of similar. I think the, the whole kind of um, question of anti-Indigenous racism had much more purchase in Western Australian society um, being the kind of horrific mining economy that it is. Um, it's based on the dispossession of, of Indigenous people from the land. And there's a whole ideology that goes along with that. So it certainly had a purchase and, and had a current and it was reflected in the many attacks that occurred on, on Asian people. As far as the kind of response that, that occurred, there was different kinds of responses. There was uh, a, a ninja society, uh, a dojo in the northern suburbs of Perth, led by this guy called John Ang, who established these ninja self-defence classes for Asian um, people in Perth, but also more broadly. And he made a number of kind of very public statements and, and organised roaming self-defence squads of ninjas around parts of Perth, in, in the, the particularly in the Asian areas. So that was um, kind of one response. And then on the other hand, there was a, a, a very kind of moderate response sort of um, encouraged by the Labor Party and its affiliate sort of multicultural organisations of uh, you know, education of attempting to legislate against hate speech and so on. And those currents didn't really sit very easily together, it has to be said. Uh, what became of the A&M? Uh, well, they, as part of their campaign, they were engaged in quite a lot of armed robbery. Uh, and then the kind of general context of the uh, increasing police uh, crackdown because of these armed robberies uh, led them to very paranoid dynamics inside of the organisation. And so a number of them actually, um, well, two of them in particular, um, murdered uh, another third member of the A&M, a young 20-something-year-old guy, and dumped his body in one of the creeks, I think it's kind of in the southern suburbs of Perth. And then there was a huge kind of court case. You know, basically the, the state government decided that this had all gone too far, that they could handle... Uh, the racist postering up to a point, but beyond that, when it began to spill out into armed robbery, when it started to be reported internationally in the press, they were concerned about Asian investment in the state and Asian holiday making and, and so on. And all of that kind of prompted a, a crackdown on the AM. So all of the leading figures, including Jack Van Tongren, went to jail. They were, Jack Van Tongren was released sometime in the 90s and um, basically started up his same old, same old again. A series of attacks were again kind of made on Chinese restaurants. So I think they began to broaden their remit to targeting Muslims and so on. But, you know, and again, um, Van Tongren was arrested. But this time he was, was let free um, if he agreed to leave the state. So a deal was cut and he agreed that he would leave Western Australia and, and go off to Victoria, where I think he now spends his time painting atrocious watercolours. You can look them up, they're, they're kind of hideous bucolic scenes. So, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't advise it, but you can if you're kind of curious. 
I noticed uh, the other day that one of his acolytes from the 90s, uh, Ben Weirheim, has made a return as an anti-vaxxer yogi. Oh, my Perth. God. <laughs> really? That's hilarious <laughs> and terrifying. Actually, you've written a bit about the influence that the Turner Diaries had on the A&M. Could you speak to what that influence was? And did that text have influence on other Australian fascist groups? Yeah, so the Turner Diaries, for people who don't know, is a work of fiction, supposedly. Well, I mean, it it is uh, written by an American neo-Nazi called William Pierce, um, but he wrote it under a pseudonym, Andrew MacDonald. And the book is really kind of a, a kind of a fantasy description of a fascist revolution. It's kind of a, a offers a, a template in some ways for. Uh, how the far right should build influence, how they should operate, what they should target. In the Turner Diaries, it's kind of set in the future, reflecting on how society got to be the kind of white fantasy that that, um, the protagonist, the main um, protagonist is describing. And so they talk, the the diaries um, talk about, you know, this kind of moment of revolution and the various kind of uh, attacks on liberal media um, establishments and uh, figures of of colour, public figures of colour and so on. So, and and it it kind of, it argues effectively uh, that there needs to be an escalation at some point. And I suppose it kind of fits in with a lot of that sort of accelerationist ideas that are around um, sections of the fascist movements internationally. So it played a really important role for um, Van Tongren. He bought hundreds of copies and distributed them across Australia. But internationally, it it, it has played a really important role and important for figures like um, Timothy McVeigh, who who was one of the Oklahoma City bombers, and, and he actually cited the diaries as providing him with some of his key inspiration. You know, more recently, the um, New Zealand Christchurch um, killer uh, cited the Turner Diaries again. So it's kind of this standard text for a particularly noxious, vile um, and violent current of the kind of fascist movements internationally. Uh, I guess um, I just, uh, one other question would be um, you're looking at Perth at uh, in the 1980s and Melbourne in the 1970s. Uh, what other aspects of um, anti-fascist history are you examining in your thesis? Uh, well, the first chapter uh, is actually on the Communist Party. In It was meant to, to just be in the 1950s, but I fell down a rabbit hole and decided that you couldn't understand anything about the 1950s unless you went back to the 1930s um, and then to the 1920s. So, yeah, that was was a challenge. But so I'll see whether or not that kind of fits into the the broader spectrum of things. But after the 1970s in, sorry, the 80s in Perth, I'm looking at the 1990s again in Melbourne, the early 1990s, a a series of campaigns that occurred against um, national action when they tried to make a uh, an intervention into the city there. And then I'm looking at the anti-Hansen demonstrations in the 1990s, which are just wonderful and so much kind of larger and significant and, and inspiring than almost any of the histories of the Hansen phenomena give them, you know, give them a room uh, or give expression to. And then the last chapter is going to be on Reclaim Australia and the, the kind of anti-fascist response to that. 
Well, Vashti, that's all we've got time for. Thanks so much for joining us. If people want to read more of your work, uh, you have a recent article in Labor History about anti-fascism in Australia, and you've also recently published the book, The Story of Palestine, Empire, Repression and Resistance, which you can get from Red Flag Books. Thanks for joining us. No worries. Thanks for having me. Well, Andy, that's all we've got time for. Global Intifada is up next. We'll catch you next week. See you then. Step up and get the jab to step out for all things fab. For random chances, dances and cheeky glances. For rainbow communities, sports, arts and families. Because every step we take from here will bring our communities closer to stepping out. Victoria's LGBTIQ plus community organisations are behind you and are here to help. So let's step up, get vaxxed and step out. To find a rainbow friendly clinic near you, visit coronavirus.vic.gov.au forward slash LGBTIQ. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution.